third lesson this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, the 20th chapter, verses 27 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in seminary, I encountered some really smart people. Most of us had some sort of intellect, or at least we had some sort of twisted love for being professional students, I'm not sure which. But either way, in almost every single class that I had, there was always that one person. That person who, within the first five minutes of the class, on the first day of the semester, you just knew was going to make it their goal in life to show everyone how much smarter they were than the professor. I just love these people. They brought me so much joy, especially when that moment would come, and it most definitely would come, when they would ask the question that they really didn't want to know the answer to. They would ask the question, and all of a sudden the response from the professor would lift that veil from the other student's eyes and show everyone that student's ignorance. I was in my CH13 class, church history. We learned about all kinds of things in that class. We learned about all of the great church fathers and church mothers and what they believed. And it was just, it was a fun class. For those of you who have taken Christian Believer or something like that, it's like that, but times a hundred and a lot harder. And so we were in there and it was the perfect venue for this guy named Dave to be able to show the professor how much he already knew coming into the class. Dave would always have something more to say when the professor had finished speaking. Most of the time, it was a question. It wasn't a question that was asked because he wanted to know the answer. It was a question that was asked in such a way that he would show the professor how much he already knew. Dave was smart. Nobody denied that. Everybody knew that he was probably going to not be a pastor. At least we hoped he wasn't going to be a pastor the way he acted. He was probably going on to do some Ph.D. work, become a a professor of religion, while the rest of us were doing ministry elsewhere. Well, one day, about halfway through the semester, Dave thought he was going to ask the question that would end all questions. He was going to ask the question that would forever prove his intellectual superiority to the professor and all 80-something of us around him in class. I can't even remember the question that he asked. 
I just remember that it was so complex that all of us, after he had asked it, were looking at each other with two expressions on our face. What did he just ask? And what is Dr. Smith going to say about it? Dave asked a question that was so complicated that 80-something students in seminary had no idea what he had asked. And we just knew that Dr. Smith had to be some sort of saint for putting up with Dave's personal quest to best the professor. There's only so much of that that somebody can take, right? We just knew that Dr. Smith was going to let him have it this time. He was going to unleash the fury of a thousand pent-up theologians on Dave. It was going to be great. Dr. Smith is quite possibly the smartest man I've ever met. But he's also one of the kindest. Rather than crushing Dave under the weight of theological concepts only understood by God and Dr. Smith, he answered Dave with a question of his own. Do you really want to know? And immediately the class went silent. Dr. Smith and Dave locked eyes with one another. We all looked at Dave thinking, this is going to be good. What do you have to say to that, Dave? You've always got something. And then we noticed that Dave's demeanor changed. Dave said the only thing he could to Dr. Smith. Yes, I really do want to know. And so Dr. Smith proceeded to answer Dave's question. But he didn't just answer the question that Dave had posed originally. He managed to take that question as a launching point and used it to teach the entire class a deeper concept than we thought we were going to get into that day. We probably wouldn't have gotten there if Dave hadn't asked that question. But instead of embarrassing Dave too badly in front of everyone, Dr. Smith taught us all a concept that we could use in our ministry. It's a concept that all of us can use in our lives. Everything is a teachable moment. And that's exactly what Jesus does with the Sadducees that come to Him in Luke. He teaches them. This group of Sadducees comes to Jesus as Jesus has been teaching the people some incredibly difficult things. Well, that's great, but who are these Sadducees? We don't hear much about them in the Gospels. There's not that much known about them. But what we do know is that the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders who we might think of as the thinkers, the professional students, the ones who liked to show off how much they knew to everyone around them. They were the Daves of their age. But they held some interesting beliefs. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They thought this concept was absolutely ridiculous, and they wanted to prove to a very large group of people just how crazy this thought was. Well, what better way to do that than to come to Jesus with a trick question that will unravel this belief in front of a large crowd. So they come and they ask a question. And the question seems innocent enough in the beginning. It's a question that hits very close to home for some of us. It's a question that not all of us have asked, but we've all wondered similar things. Who's going to be in heaven? What will it be like? Will Simon and Charlie, the dogs that I had as a young boy, be there? Will all of my grandparents be there? Will they know me? Will they be like they were in the prime of their life? Or will they be weakened and withered like I mostly remember them? Will I finally have that floating car that I've always wanted, like in the Jetsons? Will I get to play Augusta National every day when I wake up and break par? Jesus and the resurrection. Whose wife will this woman be? She was the wife of seven men. 
Who is it? This is a very deep theological question. It's a good question if asked with the right intent of heart. But Jesus knew these Sadducees, just like Dr. Smith knew Dave. Jesus knew that they didn't really care about the answer. As far as they were concerned, there was no right answer. They just wanted the question to show everyone around them how much they knew and how ridiculous this belief in the bodily resurrection truly is. And my guess is Jesus probably muttered a similar response under his breath to that of what Dr. Smith did. Do you guys really want to know? And then rather than commencing to crush these Sadducees under the theological weight of a thousand pent-up theologians, Jesus uses this as a teachable moment. They wanted to disprove the resurrection. They wanted everyone to know what they already knew. So what does Jesus do? He teaches the Sadducees and the crowd about just how real the resurrection is. He teaches them about heaven. He gives them and us a glimpse into what is to come. It isn't marriage. It isn't golf. It isn't floating cars. It's eternal life. It's an absence of death. It's an absence of pain and suffering. It's eternal life. It's a coming together of all of God's people to praise God, the God of the living. It's a wonderful thing, but we can't just think of it as a continuation of the life that we're living right now. It doesn't work that way. This is a tough concept for us to wrap our minds around because the media has ingrained ideas and images of heaven into our theological imaginations to the point that we believe more about heaven based on what the media tells us than what's described about heaven in the Bible. The Legend of Bagger Vance is one of my all-time favorite movies. It describes heaven as a perfect golf course. It's neat. It's not biblical. The Hereafter is a movie that came out directed by Clint Eastwood just a few years ago. It explores life after death and glimpses of fuzzy, light-filled ways. But again, not biblical. The Dante Trilogy and the Left Behind series, they're really, really, really prevalent in society. They're entertaining interpretations of life after this, but not biblical. What does Jesus say? Well, right now, people marry. The understanding of marriage at that time was that there needed to be a child who could carry on the family lineage, who could carry on the family business, who could carry on the family story. There needed to be an heir. That's why Moses gave the command that if a woman's husband died, she would marry the brother. They believed that a part of that man would carry on in his family members and his brother and that he could have that heir as if it were his own son. It was so that there could be this continuation of the family. Marriage might have been for love in certain cases. But marriage was a very different situation at that time than it is now. It was for continuity and security. Marriage was linked directly to death if you get down to it. The only reason to marry and to have children was because we aren't able to live forever. So Jesus' response makes a little more sense in the context of eternal life. When he says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can't die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. He's telling the Sadducees that you can't compare this life to heaven. 
It's not even like comparing apples to oranges. They're two totally different things. They're not even in the same ballpark. Because the resurrected body is eternal, because it doesn't die, because it doesn't rot, because it doesn't decay, we've got no reason to be married in heaven. It won't even be a thought in our minds. We have to think about the resurrection in terms of the overarching story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that was in them and said that it was very good. And somewhere in that garden, we turned away from God. We broke that perfect relationship that we had with Him. Things are no longer right. Things are no longer the way that we were once created to be. Death entered the picture. And so from that point on, humans have had to reproduce so that we might continue to work with God in the ongoing act of creation. We've had to have children so that the story might go on. One day when creation is finished, when things are as they should be, when death is no more, we'll be able to relate to God and one another in that perfect harmony that we were originally created to be in. At that point, Jesus tells us that there will be no need to be married. This is not because we're no longer going to love the spouse that we once did, but because we as the church, as the body of Christ, we will need only one spouse, Jesus. With no more death, the story will go on forever without need of current earthly arrangements like marriage. Jesus is not saying that marriage and things of the like are not important here and now. They are. It's just going to be a different life. They just aren't going to fit into the structure of this world to come. Our only focus, our only need and our only desire on that day will be to worship the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. If we get caught up in the details of things like whose wife will she be in the resurrection, we're essentially saying that the resurrection doesn't lead to eternal life. But because Jesus tells us that we will live forever. We can turn our attention to things that are worthy of our time here and now. Mainly the continued building of the kingdom of God here on this earth now with us. I wish I could tell you exactly what heaven's going to be like. I wish I could stand up here and give you the answers to all of your questions about heaven. But I don't have all the answers. We don't know that much about heaven. The Bible doesn't give us many details about it. But what it does tell us, though, should calm any of our fears. It should clear up any doubt of whether or not it's a place you want to be. It tells us that we will be able to live forever with God and with the children of God. And we won't have to worry about all of the things that make this life so complicated. We're going to have one purpose. Pure, open, undefiled, life-filled worship of the God who made us all. Questions about the resurrection, about heaven, about any of these difficult, deep concepts that you'll find in the Bible, they're not a bad thing. They're good. It's good to have these questions. It's in asking the questions that you'll find answers to, and more often than not, you'll find more questions about the questions that you have about your faith in the first place. Questions are how you grow. It's out of these questions that come actions that reflect the faith in which you believe. Questions are a good thing. But when you ask these questions of God, 
Be ready for the answer. Sometimes the answer isn't exactly what you were looking for. Sometimes the answer to the questions that you're asking will be filled with more wisdom than you ever could have expected. So before you ask your next question, ask yourself, do you really want to know the answer? The answer just might take your faith deeper than you ever intended. Amen.